Welcome to Working the Word with Jonathan Vorse. Join us now for service already in progress at Lakewood Church of God. Today, we're going to continue this series on conversational evangelism, and we're going to be talking about Jesus and Zacchaeus. Uh, how, many, how many remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a little bitty guy. He was a wee little man. Yeah, yeah, that, that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, remember? Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the... Am I the only one that knows that song? Oh, you were already singing it before. All right, all right. See, even Jesus likes little people. All right, praise the Lord. All right, Luke chapter 19. Let's pray before we get going here, okay? Father, we just come to you right now in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for the joy and the privilege that we have of being able to gather together and to minister things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I pray that you would touch our hearts and our lives. Help me to be able to effectively communicate the word of God today. I rely heavily upon you and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit to be able to, to minister this message the way it needs to be ministered. And Father, we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to begin uh, reading in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. The Bible says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house." And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham." For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. All right, there, there it is right there. We could have actually went through those two slides right there. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now let's dissect this for just a few moments. The first thing that I want us to pay attention to is this, and that's that lost people matter to God. I said, lost people matter to God. In fact, they matter to God so much that He was willing to give the most precious thing in His, in, in his surroundings, in His reality, which was Jesus, to come to this earth to die on Calvary so that you and I could be saved. This was not the first time that Jesus had went through Jericho. It was not the second time that he went through Jericho. This was, in fact, the third time that Jesus went through Jericho, which tells me that Zacchaeus had probably heard of Jesus, experienced Jesus, and seen Jesus before. 
This takes us back to the message that I was preaching to you last week about how that a lot of times when we talk to somebody about Christ and they give their life to Jesus, many times we have entered into the labor of other people. The Bible said, Paul planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. So sometimes our assignment is to plant the seed of the Word of God. Sometimes our assignment is to water the seed of the Word of God. Sometimes our assignment is to actually harvest, to reap the harvest, which is when we pray for someone and they agree to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This was the third time that Jesus went through Jericho and He was on His way to Jerusalem. So lost people matter to God. And the Bible teaches us that that lost people watch our lives. They watch how we act. They watch how we talk. They watch how we respond when we're in difficult situations. They watch our lives to see whether we really live what we profess. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 2 through 3 says this, You yourselves are our letter. This is Paul writing to the rowdy bunch at Corinth, the Corinthian church. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I want you to pay attention here. It says, you are our letter written on our hearts. Now, here's the part I want you to notice. Known and read by everyone. Listen to me very closely, church. People that you do not know, watch how you live. I said, people that you do not know, watch how you live. Because if you wear the name of Jesus Christ, then there is a certain level of responsibility that you carry. Another place in Scripture, the Bible says that we do not want to make the cross of Christ of none effect and bring Him to an open shame. Can I just say to you, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, for goodness sakes, act like a Christian. Hello? Act like a Christian. Talk like a Christian. You are representing Jesus. You're representing your brothers and sisters. You're representing the church as a whole. Now, lost people matter to God. It doesn't really matter to God how tall you are, how short you are, how many muscles you have, Pastor Josh, how many you don't have. <laughs> really doesn't matter to God. Really doesn't matter to Him about that. The Bible said that Zacchaeus was short and rich. Some people say... <clears throat> Well, I just don't. The Bible said that money is the root of all evil. No, it doesn't. The Bible never said that money is the root of all evil. The Bible said the love of money is the root of all evil. When we understand that money is God's servant and it's our servant and we can use it for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we learn that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, God's system and God's ways of doing things, that all these things would be added unto us and the more we study it, the more we realize it's not wrong to have stuff. What's wrong is when the stuff has you. And so Zacchaeus was short and Zacchaeus was rich. And this tells us that in the simplest terms that this story communicates to us that it doesn't matter to God what you look like or how much money you have or what you don't have. God still loves you. Come on, touch your neighbor and say, God loves sinners. 
God loves sinners. God loves sinners. And let me say something else about this, and I just feel directed by the Lord to say it like this. Let me say something like, let me say it to you like this, okay? God does love sinners, number one. Number two, if you've given your life to Christ, you are no longer a sinner. Okay. I'm going to hammer this for a minute, okay? If you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are no longer a sinner. Some people say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not a sinner. I said, if you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not a sinner. You are washed, you are cleansed, you are purified, you are set free, you're a son of God, you're an heir of God, you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has been applied to you and when you call yourself a sinner after the application of the blood, it's an offense to the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to embrace my sonship. I'm going to embrace the identity. I'm going to embrace the authority. I'm going to say, thank you, Lord, for washing me. Thank you for cleansing me. Thank you for taking my sin away and removing it as far as the east is from the west and remembering it against me no more. God loves sinners, but he loves them to save them and to bring them into the family of God. Jesus had haters. Luke chapter 19 and verse number 7. They were hating on Jesus. I, I, I found this. I thought it was awesome. Be like Jesus. Spend enough time with sinners to ruin your reputation with religious people. Oh, I'm like, yeah, that was inspired. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Luke 6, 26. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. If you're living for Christ, not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to love you. And let me tell you something I've learned through all these years. I've learned that when you start operating in the power of the Spirit, there's a whole bunch of people that's not going to like you either, especially religious people. Did you know that the church is the only army in the world that kills its own wounded? Did you know that instead of encouraging one another and reaching down and helping one another that the church seems to have this problem of biting and devouring when someone messes up? You know what the Bible says about that? If a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. And when you do this... When you are involved in restoration, then you are fulfilling the command of the love of Christ. Jesus had haters. Jesus had people that couldn't stand him. They hated him. They didn't want anything to do with him. And you know what? You know what? Haters going to hate. Haters are always going to hate. If your goal in life is to get everybody to love you, you're going to hit your grave and be very, very disappointed. Because I've found out on my journey through life, there are more people that love me, but there is also more people that hate me. So you shouldn't be worried when someone doesn't think well of you or when someone tries to work against you. Just stay away from the haters. Stay away from fault finders. Stay away from people that, that hate people. Stay away from people that have a critical fault finding spirit. Listen, they will destroy you. They will destroy you. 
here in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 7, the Pharisees were standing over there and Jesus had walked up to the sycamore tree and he had said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to your house for tea. And the Pharisees stood over there and said, well, he's going to eat with publicans and sinners. Well, let me tell you something. I found out a long time ago that most of the time a sinner will treat you better than a saint. You didn't just say that. Yes, I did. 2 Timothy 3 and 5, the Bible said that, you know, speaking of people that are fault finders and critical spirit, the Bible speaks of them having a form of godliness, denying the power thereof. The Bible said, from such turn away. Professing God but not producing, the Bible said, from such turn away. 1 John 4.20, how can you say that the love of God dwells in you if you say you love God but you hate your brother? That's a paraphrase of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, but that whole little section there talks about that. A critical spirit has stopped a lot of people from living for the Lord. You see, God's people, God's people can get trapped in a critical fault-finding spirit. These Pharisees that were finding fault with, with Jesus for walking up to this tree that had this little short, rich tax collector that had ripped the entire community off and saying, come on down, I'm going to go to your house. We're going to sit down, we're going to have a talk over tea. These Pharisees that were finding fault with him were church folks. Come on, we're on conversational evangelism. And today's all about, if you profess it, you better possess it. That's what today's about. That's what the message today is about. The message today is, you know, when you go out here and you start talking to lost people, you might have some people in the church that's going to say, well, I saw you over there in the parking lot of that bar talking to somebody. Well, why don't you just go ahead and rush to judgment? Were you there long enough to see them get on their knees and give their life to Jesus? Or are you busy going down the road calling your brother and your sister and talking about somebody and acting like the devil? Hello, I love you. I got to tell you the truth. I got to tell you the way that it is. Haters are going to hate. It's a nasty spirit that has invaded the church and we don't have to have it at Lakewood. And for the most part, it's not here. And usually when it shows up, it lasts about three months and then it goes on out the door because it figures out that it's not welcome here. You can overcome a critical spirit. You can overcome a critical spirit. You don't have to live with that. You know, having a critical spirit, I know, you know, at times as a pastor and pastor's family and, you know, my kids, they've, they were born in the ministry. They, they've been raised in the ministry. You know, my, and, and, you know, we've been through some stuff. I mean, we have been through some nasty stuff together. Our family has. And there are times that old nasty spirit will try to rise up. And when it tries to rise up, we have to push it back down and we have to start praying and saying, Lord, just love, just, just love people through me. And, and, you know, we're to the point now in our family, I'm going to be straight up with you, we're to the point in our family, somebody comes into our little family unit and they try to start a mess, they're out. We just draw the line. That's a boundary you do not cross. That's what you need to do. You need to set up boundaries in your life. You can stay within your boundary and still reach to the lost, but you don't have to let the lost affect the way that you live. You are called by God as a Christian to be an influence to the world, not to let the world be an influence to you. 
And so you can overcome this critical spirit. And sometimes that critical spirit will try to, if you live for God any time at all, that critical spirit will try to rise up inside of you. There's not a person in this place that has not fought what I'm talking about. It'll try to grab you, but you can overcome that critical spirit. You say, well, how do I do that? Finally, brethren, we'll get that in a minute. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, this helps you overcome the critical spirit. Whatsoever things are true, come on, say it with me. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of if there be any virtue, that means empowerment, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Say it with me again. Think on these. Say it again. Think on these things. Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible teaches us that we put off the old man and we put on the new man with his deeds. Verse 22, we put off the old man. Verse 24, we put on the new man. Verse 23, squeezed in the middle by the renewing of your mind. So we put off the old man in his deeds by the renewing of our mind and we put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And so how do I overcome a critical spirit? I keep taking it off. When it tries to come on, I take it back off. How do I take it back off? I, by putting on the mind of Christ. By putting on things that are true. By putting on things that are honest. By putting on things that are just. By putting on things that are pure and lovely and of a good report and empowering and praiseworthy. And I, and I discipline my mind to say, you know what? This is what you're going to think about. You're not going to think about what they said about you. You're not going to think about what they did to you. You're not going to think about whether you agree or don't agree. This is what you're going to think about. Things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of a good report that are empowering and that have praise. Listen, mind, this is what you think about. That's how you overcome a critical spirit. You take the Word of God and you let the Word of God, which the Bible says is spirit and is life, and you start just speaking the Word of God into your atmosphere. Why? Because the Word will work if you work the Word. And so when you speak the Word of God into the atmosphere that is around you, then you're giving God something to work with. That mixed with faith from the written Word, Logos, Logos Word, spoke into the atmosphere can actually become the rhema Word of God because it gives God something to activate. And so you start speaking the Word of God and you start confessing the Word of God over your situation. You don't think about how poor you are. You think about how rich you are by faith. You don't think about how sick you are. You think about how whole you are by faith. You don't think about how discouraged and despondent you are. You think about how much peace that He has given you by faith. And you just say, I thank God that I believe that I am receiving it right now in the name of Jesus. You say, well, I don't want to lie. Listen, faith is speaking things that be not as though they were, not things that are as though they aren't. 
So when you speak things that be not as though they were, then what you're doing is you are identifying with the finished work of Calvary and by faith and the confession of your mouth, you are pulling the promises of God into the generation in which you live and into the moment that you are in. So I take the Word of God. I speak it over my life. I let it activate inside of me. And when I get consumed with this, I don't have time for a critical spirit. Woo! Get too busy blessing people. Get so busy blessing people. Get so busy. I've said this for years. What if the church spent half the amount of time talking about how to win the lost as they do talking about each other? Ooh, Pastor, you digging it up this morning. You digging it up. I haven't heard you be this tough in a long time. It's the Word. Hallelujah. And it'll set us free. Look at this. The effects of the new birth. Back off, devil, I belong to Jesus. That's the effects of the new birth. Zacchaeus said, you know what? Jesus, <laughs> over tea. Jesus, <laughs> I'm going to make things right. I've wronged a lot of people and I'm going to make things right. When we give our life to Christ, salvation does not exempt us from righting the wrongs of the past. So if you've done somebody wrong, then when you give your life to Christ, the motivation to do what's right will be the love of God. God pardons us eternally, but society does not. That's why someone who ends up in prison sometimes has to continue to serve their time even though they give their life to Jesus because there is a difference between forgiveness and pardon. God commands you, listen very closely. Some of you have heard this before, but there are new folks here God commands us to forgive, but He does not command us to pardon. Somebody, somebody does something, God forbid, to one of my kids, you know, one of my daughters. I am not to let that person off the hook to get out in society because I'm saying, well, you know, God forgave him and so should I. Well... Forgiveness and pardon are two different things. I can forgive him and she would have to forgive him because forgiveness sets us free. It sets us free, okay? In other words, they no longer have control over us. But if you pardon them and let them go out here so they can do it to another man's daughter, I don't think so. I don't think so, okay? And so God commands us to forgive but not to pardon. God does pardon us. God pardons all of us eternally and society does not. Now Zacchaeus did not desire to repay those he had wronged because of condemnation, his motivation was the love of God. He was just so overcome with God's love. You mean Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, walking through town for the third time, was willing to look at me, a person that was so hated, and walk up to this sycamore tree and tell me, not to just come down. He wasn't pointing accusing fingers at me, but he said, you know what? Come on down here. I'm going to go to your house. We're going to sit down over tea. We're going to talk about this. You mean Jesus loved me that much? 
where he could do that? And he got excited and he came down. The Pharisees were scowling and finding fault. Church folks were scowling and finding fault. Jesus went and sat down with publicans and sinners. Do you think that Zacchaeus was the only lost person in that room that day? No, 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 no. His entire house was lost. How do you know that? Because Jesus told him this day salvation has come to your entire house. <laughs> Hallelujah. When God's love enters our heart, it motivates us to do what's right. You don't have to convince a saved person to do what's right. One of the signs of being a true Christian is that you live honestly. Woo! At tax time. One of the that's one of that's one of the signs of being a Christian. So the desire to make things right is one of the evidences of being a Christian. And so Jesus declared that salvation has come to this entire house. That meant, I don't know if he had more, back then they had more than one wife. I've talked to Donna about that. She never agrees. But I just mess with her. Abraham had more than one wife. How come I can't? Hallelujah. She said, you get yourself another wife, buddy. I won't be around. But maybe he had more than one wife back then. Maybe, maybe his children, maybe he had a house full of children. I know he had servants. I know he had all it. And when they talked about salvation coming to the entire house, what he was talking about was, listen, changing the entire culture, changing the entire culture of his family. One conversation with Jesus Christ can change a person's family culture forever from that point on. I think it's just wonderful. See, God cares about your family. Psalms 138 and verse number 8, the Bible said, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. God loves the family unit. God loves husbands. God loves wives. God loves children. God loves grandchildren. God loves grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and all of that. God designed the family. God created the family. God made the family. God cares about your family. Now let me preach to the men for just a few moments. When are we going to start manning up and leading our family like we're supposed to for God? Listen, if you're a man and you're here this morning, I commend you. I'm thankful for you. I celebrate you. And I'm glad that you're bringing your family to church. But we've got people here that the man is setting at home. Why? Why are they setting at home? Because somehow in the culture in which we live, we've let the enemy try to say, well, you know what? Uh, Christianity is for the weak or Christianity is for the women or things like that. No, 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 no. Jesus was a man. Jesus was a man, not only, and he wasn't a sissy either. Hello! Anybody awake this morning? Maybe the 11 o'clock service will do better with Marcus. I don't know. But Jesus wasn't a sissy. He wasn't, wasn't limp There we go. Oh, I think I'll just go down the Via Dolorosa heading on my way to Calvary. That wasn't Jesus. Come on, come on. I'm preaching it right. Jesus was a man's man. Jesus was a man. He didn't go to Calvary because he was weak. He went to Calvary because he was strong. A sissy man could not have endured 
the torment that Jesus went through, the torture that Jesus went through, but a man's man could take it. Jesus endured that. And as a man, he didn't try to get out of it. As a man, he hung suspended between heaven and earth and he cried out, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. And Jesus was not killed by the Jews. He was not killed by the Romans. He was not killed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Bible said that Jesus said it is finished and he hung his head and gave up the ghost. Jesus died of his own accord only when every sacrifice that was necessary had been paid. He finished the work. Hallelujah. He finished the work. So as men, we have a responsibility to, to, to lead our families in the ways of the Lord. Well, I just don't know. I just don't know what to do. She's just stronger than I am. You know, she might be in some areas and that's okay, but I promise you if you lead, she will follow. You know why? Because she'll be so proud that she's got a man that loves her and her family enough to lead them in the ways of the Lord. Some people say, well, my husband just won't lead. He just wants to, he just won't lead. Well, let me talk to you men for just a few moments. Can't nobody follow a parked car. Don't you ask her to lead if you're not going anywhere. Don't you ask her to lead if you're not, or don't you ask her to follow, rather, if you're not going anywhere. Don't you ask her to follow if, if you know, you're stagnant in your own personal relationship with the Lord. Jesus declared to both Zacchaeus and to his critics this truth. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. What disdain the Pharisees must have felt. What freedom Zacchaeus must have felt. You mean You were willing to risk your reputation as a five-level rabbi to sit down with me in my house surrounded by stolen stuff to share with me the love of Christ. Well, Jesus, if you can take that risk on me, Zacchaeus was saying, I'm going to take a risk on you. I'm going to make things right, and I'm going to live for God. The conversion of Zacchaeus affected that entire community, the whole community. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. We're still talking about it. Seek means to worship. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save them which were lost. I've come to to worship, to desire, to endeavor, to inquire, to require, or to seek after, to go after the lost. And I've come to save sozo, which is the same Greek word for healing. So the the Greek word for salvation and healing are the same, which is sozo. So he said, I've come to save, that is to deliver or to protect, literally or figuratively, to heal, to preserve, to save, to do well, or to be whole. So Jesus told Zacchaeus, he said, listen, 
the Son of Man, and the Pharisees, the Son of Man has come to desire, to endeavor, to be about, to seek after, to go after lost people. And when I find them, I'm going to deliver, protect, heal, preserve, and save them so they can be well and be whole. Salvation doesn't begin and end at the event when you give your life to Christ. He said, I've come to seek and to save those which were lost. He was speaking of the soul. That is the mind and the will and the emotions. So he's come to set our mind free. He's come to rescue us from our will. And he's come to bring peace to our emotions. He's saving our soul. Cleansing us. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save those that are lost. So here's a few things I wanted to share with you. Conversational evangelism. Jesus had some haters, but he didn't let that stop him from doing God's work. If you let what people think about you and say about you stop you from doing the work of the Lord, then you'll never do anything because you know what? The minute Satan figures out that works on you, then he's going to keep you wrapped up and embroiled in it. Okay? So Jesus had haters, but he didn't let that stop him from doing God's work. Through a conversation over a cup of tea, not only was Zacchaeus saved, but his entire house. His whole entire house was saved. This conversation had far-reaching impact, community, financial, eternal. For 2,000 years, people have talked about this story. It empowered and impacted his entire community, not just, not just through people saying, wow, Zacchaeus got saved, but he actually started pouring money back into the community, paying back with interest things that he had stolen, and it revitalized the entire community. Now, here's things I want you to think about. Number one, what if Jesus had decided that going through Jericho was just too inconvenient? What if he had said, you know what? We've been through Jericho twice. We're on our way to Jerusalem. No, Jesus knew there was an assignment at the sycamore tree. Jesus knew that. Second thing I want you to think about, what if he would have decided that talking with Zacchaeus was too much of a risk or even a bother? I promise you there are people in your life that Christians will not go near because they're afraid of what it will do to their reputation. Find them. Be like Jesus. Be a friend to sinners. You don't have to sit down and have a beer with them. You don't have to watch the nasty, filthy movie maybe that they want you to watch. You don't have to get embroiled in their life to be their friend. Sometimes God assigns sinners to you because you are the hope that they need. And they see that hope inside of you and your compassion and love for them. Third thing, how many times have we taken a pass when the opportunity to share Christ in a loving way presented itself? I want to share a little something that happened to me on Friday with you guys. I've been ministering to you, and this is just me being transparent. I had a little what I would consider a failure. I was sitting at the Veterans Park, waiting on Donna. I had my laptop. I was putting this... PowerPoint together. I was at a picnic table with my Mac working on this. 
all by myself. And up comes this golf cart with three people in it, people that work there at the park. They just started talking to me, small talk. I actually spoke to them first, but it's just small talk. And I told them, I said, yeah, I said, my son just got hired and he's working for Pasco County now in the Parks and Recreation Department and whatnot. Oh, yeah, where? And we shared with him. I shared with him and stuff like that. And so we had small talk. And two or three times it crossed my mind, you need to say something about Jesus. After all, you're sitting here putting together a message on conversational evangelism. And I let them drive off because I thought it was too inconvenient. And the Lord spoke to me. And He said to me, don't ever do that again. I said, but God, I don't want them to go to hell. He said, they won't. They're mine. But what if they wouldn't have been? How many times? And so I just had that personal time with God. I said, man, God, I'm sorry. I mean, I can't, I can't chase the thing down. They're, you know, they're gone. They're, they're, I don't even know where they're at. Will I ever see them again? I don't know. But I know they're okay because God let me know they're mine. They're mine. But what if they weren't? I'm not saying that you have to talk to every single person that comes across your path. But when the prompting is there, you need to do it. And even your pastor sometimes fails that test. And when that happens, you don't just say, well, I can't make it. What you do is you say, Lord, let me make it up to you. Send me somebody else. Let me talk to somebody else about Jesus. Give me that opportunity. How many times have we taken a pass when the opportunity to share Christ in a loving way presented itself? And then what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of rejection? Is that why we don't talk to people about Jesus? You know, I mean, are we afraid that, you know, we're going to bother them? Well, let me tell you something. Hell's a whole lot bigger bother than a conversation. That's eternity we're talking about here. I'm trying to help you guys understand. We have a stewardship responsibility with the hope that God has given us to reach out to lost people through conversations and share with them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we're afraid of rejection, we're in good company. The Bible said in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 5 that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. And we didn't esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but... But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. And then the Bible said in verse number 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now that's rejection. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's rejection. But he went on and died anyway to finish the work so that you and I 
could have conversations that bring hope to lost people. The passion of our heart as a Christian should be that not one person leaves this world without Christ. Without Christ. So let's bold enough. Let's get emboldened to share the message of Jesus to those that God brings along our way. When we feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that means they're ripe for either being sown, watered, or they're ripe for the picking to be harvested. Let's all stand. Thank you for joining us on Working the Word. For more information, go to our website at www.suncoast4, and that's the number 4, Jesus.tv. You may also write us at 12637 Pony Lane, Hudson, Florida, 34669. Or you may call us at 727-856-1770. Our office hours are Monday through Wednesday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Thursdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., And remember, the Word will work if you work the Word.